Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and happy birthday to us. Yes, August the 11th marked the one year anniversary of the release of episode one of Soho Bites, way back then when the world was a different, less spaced out place. And I mean physically spaced out, not, you know, stoned. To everybody who's been a guest on the show and to all the listeners who've supported and downloaded Soho Bites over the last year, I'd like to offer my heartfelt thanks and a big socially distant virtual hug. This is a special fancy episode, and by that I don't mean Sunday Best China and doilies. I mean we're talking about the one-time Soho-based film producer, the King of Poverty Row himself, Edwin J. Fancy. E.J. Fancy, as he was more commonly known, was a largely forgotten figure, but has recently been dragged back from the brink of obscurity by our favourite TV channel, Talking Pictures TV. As well as occasionally screening some fancy films, they've also released a DVD box set of his work. So how fitting that for the film chat today I'm joined down the line by all three presenters from the Talking Pictures TV podcast to talk about Fancy's 1950, it says here, comedy thriller, Soho Conspiracy. Before that, I'll be talking to an aficionado of Fancy's work. Lecturer in film at Sussex University, Dr Adrian Smith, has researched and written about Fancy and makes a return visit to the show to talk about his life and career. And did I mention that EJ Fancy just made terrible films? And in case the word terrible has been co-opted by the youth to mean excellent, let me make it clear. EJ Fancy made very low-quality films. And did I also tell you that he was a convicted criminal? Possibly a murderer? Yes. Don't touch that dial. Edwin J. Fancy was certainly not an artist and would probably never have claimed to be one. The films he produced were shot as quickly and as cheaply as possible in free-to-use locations and members of his family or families, worked in his companies and starred in his films. To get the full Edwin J. Fancy experience, I would have liked to have walked around Soho with my guest Dr. Adrian Smith and spoken to him in the streets and alleyways where Fancy kept the offices for his various production and distribution companies. 
Sadly, of course, this wasn't possible, so we did the next best thing. We sat in our respective children's bedrooms and spoke to each other on Skype. OK, I'm holding in my hand the DVD box set published by Talking Pictures TV, the EJ Fancy Collection. At the top it says, a collection of films from one of Britain's best-loved filmmakers. And as much as I love Talking Pictures TV, that, that seems to be stretching the truth a little bit in more, more ways than one. Could you tell me a little bit about EJ Fancy? Tell me who he was, when was he born, what did he do, why is he a figure in uh, British film and in Soho? So he's a really interesting guy and not there wasn't that much information around on him when I started my research. So I started to dig in and uh, using various sources, including tracking people down who knew him, I managed to piece together a kind of basic biography. But yeah, he was so he was born in 1902 and he started working in film in the 40s, both as a distributor and also he was using the money that, uh, you know, they, they talk about quota quickies. He was getting the E.D. Levy to make short films during the war. And he made films up until the early 60s. And that's what some of those films are on that box set. But primarily, he made his money through distribution. He had no talent for making films. <laughs> but he did have a lot of talent when it came to making money from other people's films. So he had a big family. And all of his family worked for him. So he started out working with his brother in the 40s. And then eventually his children worked for him as well. And he had companies that included, I mean, I'm still not sure if I got the full list. But as far as I know, there was a company called DUK Films, which it's awful. But that's apparently that stood for Do You Know. There was also EJ Fancy Productions and um, New Realm. SF Distributors, which... A lot of people believe stood for sci-fi because they, they seemed they did have a few sci-fi films under that banner. And for a while, I thought it might have stood for Scott Fancy because that was uh, Scott was a family name. But I believe it actually stood for small films. And also then Border Films was another company that came along. And all of these companies would produce films, but mainly they operated as distributors and they were importing movies from all over Europe primarily what we would call exploitation films. You know, it was all basically the sex or horror were the ones that made the most money. Right. Most famously, they distributed Emmanuel through New Realm and made a ton of money. You know, that, so he had a good run of about 40 years in the film industry. The company's presence in Soho lasted until very recently, didn't it? It was there, was, there was still one of the companies, at least one of the companies was still there until about 2010, I think. Yes, that was his daughter, Adrian Fancy. And she was still running New Realm until uh, around 2012. Uh, and then she died the year later. Sadly, by the time I started doing this research, I just I came about a year, you know, a year after she died. It would have been great to talk to her. Adrian Scott, she was called, wasn't she? Is that right? Or Adrian? That was the name she used when she was acting. Because okay. she pops up in quite a few of their films. In Rock the 50s. You Sinners, she's in that, isn't she? She's, I thought she was okay, actually, yeah. in Rock You Sinners. She's, uh, yeah. she's quite a classy presence in a way. She's not like one of these sort of gormless people who's always looking off camera <laughs> at the yeah. director. <laughs> so she doesn't seem to know what she's doing. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she appeared in quite a few of them, obviously, because she was cheap, I guess, because she was part of the family. Yeah. So she ends up starring in several of the films. But yeah, I quite enjoyed Rocky Sinners, I have to admit. And so Adrian Scott slash Fancy was the product of one of his marriages that happened simultaneously. Was he an actual bigamist? It's difficult to tell. As far as I know, they never actually got married the second time. But yeah, he had a wife, Beatrice 
Scott, and they had two children together, which was Adrian and Malcolm, and they both grew up to uh, to work in the family business. But simultaneously, he began a relationship with a woman called Olive Negus, and he also had two children with her called Judith and Charles, but she changed her name to Olive Negus Fancy. So this wasn't a secret. And so Charles was known as Charles Negus Fancy, although Judith called herself Judith Smith. The children are all around the same age, so it's not like he had a second family years later. Because during the 70s, Judith and Charles both worked with Olive at Border Films, whilst EJ, which is Edwin was his name, he was up on Burner Street with his wife, who was still who worked for the company, Beatrice, and his other kids. So they were all working for the family business at the same time. So it's not like they were secret families and they didn't know about each other. This was a very open and tolerated arrangement. Yeah, that sounds quite ahead of its time in a way, that rela- that arrangement. It's almost like a Bohemian 60s setup, but several years before. Yeah, I mean, it must have been in the, you know, they're in the 40s for the, for the age of the kids to be working for him by the 50s and 60s. But yeah, the family are very quiet, very secretive. They don't want to talk about their family legacy at all. In fact, the only one who seemed to be interested in talking about her history was Adrian, because she does an interview on the DVD for Rock You Sinners, where she talks about her life. That's as much as we get as a, of a family story, unfortunately. She's the one who seemed the most untainted by scandal. Talking of scandal, EJ himself was involved in... I mean, he was... The, the sharp practices is one thing, but there's also outright criminal activity that he was almost certainly involved in. And he, would, he went to prison for... Was it GBH? Well, he stabbed his accountant in the groin so yeah, hard that his accountant lost his leg. He lost his leg, Yeah, the guy. But interestingly, about 15, 20 years later, Ray Self, who worked with the Fancies, he said that um, the Fancies had an accountant with a peg leg, <laughs> which probably means it was still the same guy. So I think, my having read all the news coverage of that story about how... Basically, EJ and his brother held this guy down and EJ stabbed him. But the accountant changed his story by the time it went to court. So I think he was offered money and he was offered a job for life if he changed his story and made it look more like an accident. EJ still went to to prison for GBH, but it could have been a lot worse if the accountant hadn't changed his story. So it's all a bit suspicious. So it wasn't a question of just lashing out in a moment of rage. He actually held him down. I mean, that's proper gangster stuff. <laughs> yeah. His first statement to the police said that Sydney held him down while EJ came at him with... Um, he claimed it was a short, double-edged sword. <laughs> or possibly a dagger. But then later on, the story changed that it was more like a letter opener or something, and it was an accident, you know, but... So that was in 1945. A couple of years earlier, EJ had been involved in a court case about receiving stolen checks. And this accountant in you know in 45, the reason he claimed initially that this had happened was because he had told the fancies that he didn't approve of their business practices. So so EJ was uh, was involved in the in the sort of murkier end of uh, of business right from the beginning. And it would appear that right all the way through his career, that didn't change. I did manage to speak to people that worked with him. It was really interesting. I spoke to one of their editors, a guy called Paul Hennessy, and he was fascinating. And he speculated that the reason the family might not want to talk to me now is because of the tax uh, implications of, of EJ's 
business. What's interesting as well is Matthew Sweet said in his book, uh, Shepherds and Babylon, he said that EJ had fraud and murder on his CV. Mm. Michael Winner and John East told Matthew Sweet that EJ was a murderer. And Matthew put that in his book. And But no one certainly tried to counter that claim. So he is the typical image of a shady film mogul. <laughs> yeah, it does <laughs> seem to be the case that um, he's just a gangster. And, you know, you could be a gangster who is a drug gangster or a prostitution gangster or a kind of, you know, bank robbing gangster. But he just does film distribution. Yeah. You know, anything that's anything's lucrative. You know, it could be protection. It could be anything. But he's just gone into film distribution because there's money to be made. And he, he had quite an unusual way of greeting people. Rather than shake hands with them, he would um, grab a gentleman by their t- yes. testicles. Let's say, let's just say the and word I, testicles. Exactly. And I've been told that uh, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, from somebody who did have that happen to him from each. <laughs> yeah. The, the films of his that I've seen, and I've suffered my way through a few of them now, I don't understand. I mean, I suppose the films I've seen are films that he produced rather than the films he distributed. I don't understand yeah. how those films made money. There's like the Zed Men one with the goons, which is bloody awful. Yeah. Yeah. Soho Conspiracy, which is very, very lame. I mean, it could be so much better. <laughs> yeah. Rock Your Sinners, I thought, was quite entertaining, but they don't understand who the audience was, why, how that could make money. Well, they're just supporting features, I think, and they're just there to be able to claim the Edie levy. That's okay. all it is, because you would get Edie money no matter how good your film was. And if it was a supporting feature and people had gone to see the second feature, you would still get the same box office split, whether your film was, was good or indifferent, <laughs> which a lot of his were. What's great about his films is because they were so cheap, he's just gone out into the streets with a camera. So if you're interested in the history of those areas where he's filmed, it's brilliant. Like there's one of his early films, I think it's the first film he directed was called London Entertains. Have you seen that one? Uh, I've not seen it's that, a, no. I don't think it's on that box set. It's on a different set that they put out. And it's a documentary. The film is introduced by Eamon Holmes. Uh, Eamon Holmes. Eamon Andrews. <laughs> uh, not Eamon Holmes. And they shoot this opening sequence in EJ's office in Queen's house on Leicester Square. Right. Because, you know, he's got this big office. Why not use it as a location? So you can see Leicester Square out the window, which is cool. And then they basically go around London. They go to the um, Festival of Britain. They go to an an early recording of The Goon Show. Oh, wow. uh, When all four goons were still in it. And they just filmed them. So from a historical point of view, it's really fascinating. There's another one that he did called Calling All Cars, where Adrian and her friend drive to to Dover, basically, to get on a car ferry. And it's just a road movie. But Carju Robinson, that really awful comedian that is not funny anymore, and his following them. And I think his car talks and the voice of the car is Spike Milligan. So there's like this weird comedy, but at the same time, you get to see this shiny new Dover uh, ferry port. It's really so. There's a lot to enjoy from a historical point of view, if not from an entertainment point of yeah, view. Yeah, I thought in Rocky Sinners, some of those, the dance scenes in particular, they've just obviously set a camera up in, a, in an actual dance hall, and they've so Adrian and her dancing partner gone into the middle of the hall, or or Jackie Collins is in that as well. So, so Jackie Collins and her dance partner. Yeah. So so they're acting and dancing, and the other people are just sort of stood around watching them and kind of glancing up at the camera, and that's a little glimpse of life, even though it's slightly self-conscious one. 
Um, and I, I do mm. find it very interesting. Talking Pictures TV have done an amazing job at bringing these EJ Fancy films back from obscurity. Yeah. Like the, you know, when I started doing this, it, there was you couldn't find these films anywhere, and then they would just start randomly turning up on their schedules. Yeah. Um, and then they started putting them out on DVD. I think they've done a great job at rescuing him. I mean, the fact they've put out an EJ Fancy box set, I still find hilarious. Yeah. Um, because who's heard of who's heard of EJ Fancy? Nobody. We've heard of EJ Fancy Adrian, and the Talking Pictures TV podcast team who are up next. They have two, so that's one, two, three, four, five of us, including you. Thank you to Dr. Adrian Smith for coming on the show again with another interesting look at the seamier end of UK film history. Adrian sent me his PhD thesis before I spoke to him, which is entitled The Distribution and Exploitation of Popular European Film in British Cinemas 1960-1975. I admit I didn't read it all, although I hear it's a banger, as they say, but I just wanted to read this quote from it that seemed very fitting. Soho, in the 1960s and 1970s, was full of fascinating, important, eccentric and occasionally dangerous independent filmmakers and distributors who rubbed shoulders with the major studios, the censors and the pornographers, whilst clip joints, strip clubs, sex cinemas and prostitutes hustled locals and tourists alike. It was a febrile, grubby and lucrative time to be part of the British film industry. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. At least two of EJ Fancy's films were set or partially set in Soho. Rock You Sinners from 1958, cashing in on the rock and roll craze, has scenes in a coffee shop that is probably based on the Two Eyes on Old Compton Street, but Soho Conspiracy has Soho in the title, so we had to choose that one. The film opens with an exterior shot of BBC Broadcasting House and then melts indoors to the interior of the radio theatre and a classical piano recital. Our three main characters are in the audience enjoying the concert, and we know they're enjoying the concert because they keep looking at each other and grinning. They are Italian restaurateur Carlo Scala, played by Jacques Lebrecht, his daughter Dora, played by Zena Marshall, and her handsome beau, Guy Potbury, played by John Whitty. They are the three main characters, but in any cast listing you'll find for the film, the top bill cast members are five Italian opera singers listed as playing themselves. It's confusing already. After a couple of very nice crane shots of Soho Square and Great Marlborough Street, we're in Carlo's restaurant, where we meet more of the cast. Five out-of-control restaurant staff who indulge in a bit of slapstick tomfoolery before our next character, local priest Father Shaney, walks in the door. He pronounces Soho, Soho. And as he tells Carlo about the financial troubles his church is in, what with it having been bombed in the war and all that, a plan is developed to mount a fundraiser to rebuild the church. 
Handsome guy is confident that he can get some big-name opera singers to take part. But how are they going to raise the capital to put the show on in the first place? With a bit of subterfuge, that's how. And by rubbing shoulders with some criminal elements, which always leads to trouble. Look, I want you to insert this black sheet of restaurant notepaper amongst those letters he's going to sign. Now, once you've got your father's signature at the bottom, I can type in the security note. That would be fortunate. Not really, darling. I'm not happy about it myself, but you know what your father is. And think what depends upon this concert. There's not only the part of this church to be rebuilt, there's, there's us. But what if Papa should ever find out? He won't. Look, either the singers won't agree, in which case I can return the loan unspent immediately, or they will, and we can't fail to make more than enough money to cover the loan. Either way, your father's safe, I promise you. Don't you trust me? Yes, of course I do, Guy. I've got these papers ready for him to sign. It's not much of a spoiler to say this film is a mess, and I'll leave my guests to explain the finer details of the plot, although I'm not sure there are any. The five opera singers who appear at the top of the credits were well known in their day, particularly Tito Gobby, who receives top billing. In one very confusing scene, Gobby exchanges a few lines of dialogue with his female dancing partner, and both of them are clearly speaking Italian, but have been incompetently dubbed into English. This is despite the fact that the woman in his arms was speaking English with her own voice in the preceding scene. You are so very desirable, signorina, that I have decided not to let you escape me. You surely don't mean that. I do, you know. Have you forgotten the way that you burst in to see Signor Gobbi and when a young woman like you does a thing like that? But you misunderstood, Signor. You're, you're quite wrong. What the flip is going on? And how does Carlo make any money in his restaurant when his waiting staff just run around the place like a bargain bucket version of the Three Stooges? And what on earth does Dora see in Guy? And why does Carlo get excited about pens? And why is it called Soho Conspiracy? To answer none of these questions, I got together with the three producer presenters of the official Talking Pictures TV podcast, Mel, Scott and Daniel. When I say I got together with them, I obviously mean in a virtual way because of you-know-what. So there are glitches on the lines, as we're all in different locations. But I think their opinions of Soho Conspiracy are easy to discern. I am delighted to have on the programme all three members of the Talking Pictures TV presentation team. That's Mel Byron, Scott Phipps and Daniel Riverside. Mel and Daniel have been on the programme before... But, Scott, you're a virgin, as it were, and um, therefore, could you be the person to kick us off and, and tell us how much you liked Soho Conspiracy? Where do I start? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I was thinking, if I was one of those movie reviewers that are lucky enough to get their quote plastered all over the poster, you know, what would it be? And I was thinking, oh, there'd be a picture of me shrugging my shoulders and just going, huh? That one point. <laughs> A hot mess of a movie seemed to spring to mind here because it's it's described as a B movie, and, and that B can stand for many different things as far as I'm concerned. But I don't think it is a B movie. Me and Mel, Mel and I were just saying briefly off air, it, it's a unique sort of category all its own. Yeah, it's, it's lower than a B, definitely, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard to describe exactly what this movie is. Well, we, we can describe the plot. So Who wants to have a crack at the plot? Okay, go on. I'll have a go at the plot. Okay, so uh, a Soho priest needs some money to do up his church. So a, a sort of posh wide boy convinces his girlfriend's father to uh, sign away 
temporarily. No, he doesn't. Sorry, but he doesn't. <laughs> he he tricks. He, he tricks, tricks the poor man. Right. He tricks the old man, and that's that's a wonderful bit where the old man gets very excited about having a ballpoint pen. Yeah. <laughs> he tricks the old man into signing a blank piece of paper on which is then typed. He uses the restaurant basically as security to get two grand from this dodgy property dealer to pay Italian opera singers to raise money for the church, I think is roughly the plot. Daniel, you have I yeah, missed that, that, something? That's correct. So, uh, <laughs> sorry for barging in, but just I, I would like to point out as well that uh, uh, the father previously warned him about this money lender. Within like the context of the movie, we're supposed to view the, 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 the Italian father as, you know, this ethnic stereotype and this sort of like lovable but kind of goofy, you know, foreigner, mm -hmm. whilst uh, the uh, posh British guy is our leading man. But actually, the father is a much smarter and uh, a better person than our leading man, who is just terrible. He's but horrible, isn't he? He's horrible. But, but, you know, they do everything they can, I feel, to make the Italian, as you say, Daniel, a stereotypical daft foreigner, um, to the point of him getting really overexcited about a ballpoint pen. I couldn't believe how long that scene went on. They are you very know. excitable, though, aren't they, foreigners? This is the thing that we learn from old films. Foreigners do get very worked up about things. And at one point, um, he has a little turn in the kitchen, has a little faint because one of the punters in the restaurant didn't like the champagne. So he runs around the kitchen with a knife and then has to sit down and they waft him with their aprons. Yeah. And he doesn't run to the customer, does he? He just runs around the kitchen in a circle, 360 yeah. degrees. Um, what we should make clear is the raising of the money is to put on a benefit gig mm -hmm. and the loan shark pulls a fast one. After he agrees to give the money, to lend the money to Guy uh, with this as long as he's got the security of the, the restaurant. He then ropes in his girlfriend, who happens to be the assistant to the general manager at Covent Garden Opera House, and says, string him along, tell him he's got the date, uh, he's got the theatre booked for a particular night, and then just before, pull out, and therefore, he hasn't got a show, therefore he won't make the money, therefore he won't pay me back by midnight on, on a certain date, and um, I will own the restaurant, and therefore can knock it down to build some monstrosity, which is a very, which is a modern theme in Soho. It does have modern mm. resonance. A lot of that goes on. After they pull their fast one, Father Shaney, who is the the priest uh, for whose benefit this is all being put on, I, I, I don't know if uh, if I got this wrong. Please correct me. But he basically says, "Oh, well, we can just do it at the church." He says something like, and I've watched it three times, and I still can't quite figure it out. He says, old Mrs. So-and-so's got that big hall in Soho that's just empty, and there's loads of space. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's an amazing venue that yeah. they get. It's, it's like on a level with any kind of opera house in Covent Garden. Yeah, with obviously <laughs> hundreds of changing rooms and, you know, yeah. a scene dock. There's even as, as one scene where they're actually standing in the, the lobby area 
and there's a sign saying stalls and a curved staircase going down. It's clearly a theatre. Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Mrs. barn is an actual functioning theatre. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it undermines the entire movie because the whole point is this sort of like, let's put on a show, right? Let's just plucky, uh, uh, plucky cockney yeah. getting there. But actually, no, this is just like a super professional venue that they got, ended up at. <laughs> Yeah, and there's, there is a reason for why the show looks so professionally staged, which we'll come to in a sec. Does anybody have a favourite member of the cast or favourite character? I'd like to mention Zena Marshall just briefly because mm. going into this movie, I went in completely blind. And the first thing I noticed was the name Zena Marshall. Why do I know that name? James Bond fans out there will know that she was one of the very first Bond girls. She appeared in Doctor No as... <laughs> For want of a better phrase, Doctor No's Madam. Really? She was in charge of all the uh, the bevy of beauties in Doctor No's underground lair, Miss Tarot. So Zena um, plays Dora, the daughter of the funny foreigner. Yes, playing oh. an Italian or daughter of an Italian. Yeah, she so, so he she, she calls him Papa, which shows that he, she's the daughter of, of an immigrant. In, in real life, she was born in um, Kenya, okay. and the rest of her acting career. She played Asian characters for most of her movies mm. after this. Right. Um, she had a career lasting right up till it was late 60s, and it was mainly sort of B-movies, science fiction, sort of pot boilers and things like that. But she would always play like an Oriental-type character because of this distinctive face that she had. I thought she yeah. was quite odd. I thought her performance was weird because she never made eye contact with people. The scene where Guy is trying to convince her to f fool her dad... She kind of looks past him, she looks down, she looks around. I'd, and then I've noticed that she did that a lot in other scenes. I think possibly it's one of these, I don't want to look because I'll corpse kind of things. Or is it Marlon Brando? She's got all her lines written on different parts. Oh, possibly that, yeah. <laughs> if, if we're talking about like screen credits of this cast, uh, David mm. Hurst, who plays Franco, who... I don't know if he's supposed to be a German waiter, but he certainly gives it a gigantic German accent as opposed to an Italian accent, which makes sense because the actor was born in um, Austria and came to England with the Kinder Transport. Uh, he had roles in movies like uh, Kelly's Heroes, Hello Dolly, The Boys from Brazil. So, you know. I definitely heard a German accent there. I was very confused by that because, well, I was confused by several things. One is that, um, he had a German accent. It's owned by an Italian, but the restaurant is called Café du Jardin. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and the actor playing, uh, the actor playing uh, Carlo Scala um, is Jacques Labrec, which sounds quite French, French to me. He's French-Canadian. <laughs> He's ah, Quebecois, okay. or whatever the phrase is. Yeah. Quebecian. I thought Franco, though, David Hurst, I thought, I mean, I don't, I don't know. He, he just sounded foreign. General foreign. foreign, unlike the the two Italian waiters, which was maybe come to them now. Yes, Napoleon and Caesar. Napoleon yes, and Caesar. Yes. Yeah. Who who wants to talk about who they were in real life? It's the Harrison brothers, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah. Max and Sid, and they seem to have been a kind of music hall act, but it's their respective sons who appear to have become more famous than they were. Um, Hope and Keen, was that their names? The sons? Yeah. Right. 
So Max and Sid were new to me um, and, and were introduced to them as a, in a kind of sub Marx Brothers thing with the yes. waiter. And then a woman who never appears again in the film. Never again, no. <laughs> That's spot on. It's completely a Marx Brothers scene. It sets the movie up all wrong because what I thought was going to happen from there on would be, okay, so we've got this love story that nobody cares about just as nobody cares about the love story in the Marx Brothers movie. But we have these funny, you know, Italian waiters who will probably, you know, mess about in all sorts of ways and, you know, defeat the villain at the end. And then they do nothing of the sort. Like, they're, they're barely in the movie. No, you're absolutely right. It gives the it gave totally the wrong tone, didn't it? And, yeah. yeah. It took you in the wrong direction. And then suddenly now we've got these very posh people um, because that guy, Guy, is really posh. The most clipped accent. <laughs> totally. Well, apparently he was. He did loads of voiceovers. I read John Whitty, and uh, he like used to narrate short films. And I'm a hundred percent sure again that there would be schools programs or short films that were on when I was a child that he narrated. He was the announcer on the TV version of Dick Barton Special Agent. That we see. There you go. <laughs> see what I mean by educational? That's what I was meaning. That's where I was going there. And, and- and on several episodes of Doctor Who, he played the voice of a computer. Oh, I read that, yes. Yeah. yes. He had quite a line in playing computers because apart from the Doctor Who thing, he was also in an episode <laughs> of Some Mothers Do Have em, uh called The Labour Exchange, in which he plays the computer. <laughs> no way! Really? Yes. I mean, I must have seen him in something. I can't can't think what. Maybe in the 1969 TV series Out of the Unknown, he played the computer. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're agreed that the the film is a shambolic mess, um, yes. and, and there are there are reasons for this, which have come down largely, I think, to Edwin J. Fancy being the producer. Mm-hmm. The director of the film, somebody I think handpicked by Edwin J. Fancy, is a, a chap called, he hasn't got many directing credits, um, is called Cecil H. Williamson. He did have a film career here and there. He had little bits of work here and there. But he had a much more interesting life outside of film, which, uh, Daniel, I think you know more about this than, um, than anybody else in the world at the moment. Uh, He is uh, mostly uh, known for being a big uh, name in the world of the occult. He was uh, friends with the guy who uh, came up with the Wicca movement. So maybe all of Soho conspiracy actually has deep occult meaning that we are just, you know, as outsiders, we can't understand all the rights. That's what it is. We need to watch it again. Now we know that. Ah. Yeah. You, yeah. You'll see it with a different eye, a third eye. <laughs> that you didn't know you had. Apparently in 1938 he was hired by MI6 to investigate the Nazis' interests in the occult. A bit like Indiana Jones in that first Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was the inspiration for Indiana Jones. There's not much of an auteur theory to be built around Cecil H. Williamson, is there? No. It does not, not really. seem like the deep personal preoccupations uh, no. <laughs> uh, are to be found in Soho Conspiracy. Well, that probably comes down to, as as Dom alluded to, this, this the strange genesis of this film in the first place. Yes. 
which apart from Cecil's lack of talent I mean let's get that out on the table as well yeah well did he have anything to do with it at all I don't even think he did particularly <laughs> I, I would lay the blame for this film at the feet of EJ Fancy really mm-hmm. so a conspiracy is based on an earlier film from two years previously called um, Mad About Opera and it's not only based on it Great big chunks of Mad About Opera are in <laughs> this film. So anytime you see a lush bit of staging or some guy singing in an airport or anything like anything that's not in a in a four wall set or a Soho street is from Mad About Opera. And um, from the little bit I've seen today of the original, which is in Italian with a Russian voiceover and English subtitles, so it's quite difficult to discern. <laughs> It seems to be a, a scene by scene remake of that film. Even the the snogging in the kitchen, the loan shark being loan sharky in his office. Yeah. Slapstick wasn't part of it, surely. I, I, I was going to say that, that. that's yeah. the difference. You do not see uh, equivalents of Napoleon and Caesar <laughs> slapping about at the beginning. Right. And I think it's actually like really telling that this is a, a straight remake because, you know, you have this movie that is mostly around the Italian community in London. And originally, this is probably a much more interesting movie because it's like a movie that they decided to make about the Italian immigrant demographic in London made by Italian people and it's it has some pedigree like the original script uh, was co-written by Mario Monicelli who later on went on to be, become one of the great directors of uh, Italian comedies in the 60s the cameraman is Mario Bava who would go on <laughs> to become the biggest name in Italian horror ever uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Gina Lollobrigida is in this as well mm. who what uh, confuses me most is that there are some scenes where one of the opera singers does have dialogue in Soho Conspiracy, right? So it's not like That's they did this completely yeah. without that guy knowing. Very badly dubbed. I mean, the scenes where he is talking, they're taken from the original film. So he is speaking in Italian, they've dubbed it with English. Into English, the yeah. other th- doesn't, he speak to, doesn't he speak to Dora at some point? No, he speaks to Sylvia... Yeah. So there's very, very ropey bit of plotting where Dora says, I know my friend Sylvia Malaschina. I was wondering him. why they brought her in. So she has a scene with Dora when she's got face pack all over her face yes. because then when she appears later on trying to get chummy with um, the it's opera a singer, it's a different person. It? It's a different <laughs> person altogether. <laughs> respect, respect. Can't knock the hustle. You know, I know. That's... It's really weird. And it's only occurred to me that that was what they did. Not when I was watching the film, I was just sort of pondering something else. And it just came to me in a moment of inspiration. Oh, that's why they look different. <laughs> so, Dom, the airport scene, that, that where he's singing on the on the steps, that's all straight a straight lift from the Italian film as yeah, well. Yeah, they've, they've just, they just put a razor blade at the beginning of it and a razor blade at the end and just taped it into the film. <laughs> as for the scene in the airport, as you say, it was definitely just sort of cut, pasted, slapped in the middle. And then just to back that up, they went to some shots of um, newspaper headlines saying arrives at London airport. Yeah. Freeze frame some of those headlines because there's some really bizarre ones about a woman finding a human skull under the floorboard. Oh, no, seriously. <laughs> yeah. so have a little look and see if this... By the way, 
Soho conspiracy. What was the conspiracy? Well, I, I think there are two conspiracies. <laughs> okay. I think it's multi-layered, this film. <laughs> the first conspiracy is a conspiracy to trick Papa into um, signing that piece of paper. Okay. And the second it's a gigantic conspiracy. Yeah. Everyone's in on it. Goes yeah. all the way to the top. And the second conspiracy is the whole thing that, that uh, McLean, the loan shark, is cooking up. Not is, really a conspiracy. Uh, well, no, no. I mean, it's. I think it's been given that title to fool people because. <laughs> but you think it's going to be a gritty kind of dark mm-hmm. noirish That's thriller. Yay. Exactly what I thought I was getting, yeah. and then I then I started to watch it, and there are these lovely theatrical curtains, and the first names that pop up are four Italian opera singers, and I thought, oh, I'm watching the wrong film. Yeah, and, and then I, oh no, I'm not. I'm watching the right film. It is the most bizarre incongruity between a title and, and an actual film. It is I think it was just to just to lure people into thinking, oh, we're gonna get something, you know, really exciting, a bit gritty, a little bit. I mean there's you know, there's no, there's there's nothing noirish about it no, at all. No. no. Can I but read you what reviews on IMDB? Um, oh yes. Yeah. I'm just gonna read this one sentence from this one particular review that's been submitted by by one of the readers. He says This is quite possibly the worst example of British cinema that could ever hope to be taken seriously that I've ever watched. It reminded me of one of those Saturdays in the kitchen when your mum gave you free run to use any ingredients you could find to put into a cake mixture and then see what the oven supplied an hour later. Well, this film is a celluloid equivalent. (laughs) I I think it's interesting, though, that... um, Well, let's talk about renowned pictures and talking pictures TV to which you're all connected because um, Talking Pictures TV or Renowned Pictures, I mean, they're the same thing, aren't they, really, have released this box set of EJ Fancy Films. They're all terrible, as far as I can tell. But I think that's a good thing that they did that. What do you think? I I think so. I mean, I, I I know that Talking Pictures and Renowned Pictures' mission is to preserve things that would otherwise get lost they, you know their mission is things that people have forgotten existed or perhaps didn't even know and should get a wider audience not necessarily because they're good yeah. but because yeah. they exist and they they are part of a history of cinema whether you like it or not ej fancy is part of british cinema history and i think in that respect then you know they are absolutely on brand they're doing you know they're doing their remit and i think they've done a good job and in fact recently i think a couple of weeks ago they showed one of his films it was at three o'clock in the morning and so i didn't watch it and i looked at it thinking you don't get much past me in 1940s british film but there was a film called balloon goes up and i had never heard of it oh yes or anybody (laughs) in it that must be in the back of the box set. And that, and then by coincidence, to discover that this was an EJ fancy film, it felt like, oh, the, the universe is in alignment. But, you know, it's part of their role to preserve everything so that it's there for people to see, whether people want to see it is, yes. of course, yeah. uh, another thing, But and whether people enjoy it. But there's certainly lots to talk about. I mean, it's not like we've, we haven't been lost for words, have we, on the subject of EJ yeah, Absolutely. 
I, I, I mean, Soho conspiracy is absolutely fascinating from like a social history perspective. I mean, all the different, like uh, all, all, all the different uh, uh, rabbit holes we've come uh, down from, uh, through here. You know, the the the, the obsession with opera, uh, the uh, a, a, a sort of weird uh, history of the director, uh, the weird history of the film itself, uh, the sort of Marx Brothers thing. It's it's a fascinating watch. You know, it's not a good film <laughs> by any means, but. I think it's, you know, I'd rather watch a bad film from 1950 than a bad film from 2020 because a bad film from 1950 will always have some interesting things to show me how different life was back then. So Soho Conspiracy is not, by any measure, a good film. But as somebody who's sat through it nearly four times now, I have to agree with Daniel's final comments there. It's interesting and worth a watch if you have a spare 90 minutes. If you'd like to see So Conspiracy and other EJ Fancy films, and I genuinely recommend that you do, the box set is available at the Renown Films website. Renown is part of Talking Pictures TV at renownfilms.co.uk. My thanks to all four of my guests today, Dr Adrian Smith, Mel Byron, Scott Phipps and Daniel Reiferscheid. Adrian tweets using the handle at Retro Ramblings and you can follow the others individually on Twitter or on at TPTV Podcast. They all have other strings to their bows, podcasts, stand-up comedy and other stuff and all the details about where to find them are on the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. I always plug the show notes but this time I really recommend you visit SohoBytesPodcast.com because I've posted the full version of the Italian film upon which Soho Conspiracy is based complete with Russian voiceover and English subtitles. It's wild. And if you're not aware Soho Bites has spawned a weird stunted sibling podcast called Mural Morsels. You can find that at SohoBytesPodcast.com slash Mural Morsels or if you're subscribed to the show it will land in your feed as if by magic. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be really grateful for a nice review or three on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can get in touch with the show with your suggestions for Soho-related features or films to talk about at SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com and you can tweet them to at BytesSoho. All complaints should be tweeted to at RealDonaldTrump. Soho Bytes is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. The next episode will be out as soon as I've managed to make it. Until then, stay safe and be alert because we need all the alerts we can get. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>